Well, good morning. Good to be with you today. If you have a Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Pastor Andrew, thank you so much for inviting us and letting us be here with you this weekend. We've had a delightful time last night with all of you that came to the conference and then uh, had the opportunity this morning during the first service to spend some time with some of your young students that feel called to ministry. It's a delight to be with you all and uh, just been looking forward to this all week. So thank you for having us. Um, I believe that God is doing something unique in this generation, and I'm encouraged to see that. I'm encouraged to be a part of that, and uh, I'm encouraged to see where it's going to go. This morning, I'm going to get straight to business. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to talk about Christ, in fact, being the center of your life and of your family and of your home, and really see what God's Word has to say. This is one of the central passages of Scripture uh, in the Old Testament, at least according to our Lord Jesus. If you have your place there, you can also kind of just hold your thumb there and flip over to Matthew chapter 22 for a second because Jesus says something about this passage, which is the passage that I'm going to look at predominantly here this morning. But in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says something about what we find here that is quite significant. So let's start in Matthew for a minute. Flip over to Deuteronomy, hear what it has to say. We're going to pray together, and I will preach just very quickly. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, listen to this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, don't read there like an attorney. Think about someone that was a scholar, an expert in the Old Testament law. So somebody, a Pharisee specifically that specializes in the teachings of the law. And that lawyer asked him a question. The Bible tells us testing him. They're setting a trap for him. And they said, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in all of the law? Jesus said to him, listen to this, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter six, where we're going to be. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, this is the first and the greatest commandment. And then the second one's likened unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says in verse 40, on these two commandments hang or hinge all the law and the prophets. So let me summarize what Jesus said, then we're going to go to Deuteronomy. The question is simple. Of all the commands in the Old Testament, which one's the greatest command, the most, we could say it this way, which one's the most important command? Another way you could translate that question is, or in, to apply it to our lives is, God of everything in there, what do I really have to really focus on and pay attention to? And Jesus points to this Deuteronomy passage. He says of it and the Leviticus passage that all the rest of the law hangs and hinges on that command. Deuteronomy chapter 6, listen to this. Verse number 4, this passage of Scripture is often referred to as the Shema. That's Hebrew for hear and obey. Think about when a parent might get down into the face of a little kid and maybe grab them by the cheeks for a second and say, listen to me, boy. When you say something like that, what you're saying is more than just merely Hear the words that I'm about to say to you and process them mentally. What you're saying is listen and do. Listen and obey. Listen and heed. That's what the word Shema means. And God specifies to his people, listen to me on this. 
The context of this is that the children of Israel have been wandering in the desert for 40 years. Do you remember at the beginning of this journey in the book of Exodus, God had given the Ten Commandments. And then they wandered for, 10, for 40 years in the desert. And right before they're about to go into the land of Canaan, God repeats the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And then follows it up in Deuteronomy chapter 6 with this statement. Listen to what it says, verse 4. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Jesus quotes that verse. Verse 6, And these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house or when you walk by the way when you lie down and when you rise up. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gate. Let's pray. Our great God, we pause this day to ask that you might speak to our hearts and to our minds in a unique and profound way today. Lord, it is good that we regularly gather and we hear the word preached and for some of us do the preaching of the word. But Lord, in the midst of all of that, it can become for us routine and familiar. And so, Father, I pray today that there would in fact be nothing routine and nothing familiar in these moments. But God, we pray that your spirit and your word will go forth in such a way to conform hearts, to change lives, to challenge, to bring conviction, to shape and to alter the trajectories of our lives. Help us, Lord Jesus, to listen as a people that desperately need to hear from you. So God, speak to us now, I pray. Do those things, God, that I sure can't do. Change hearts, direct lives, make your people strong, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. What if everything you've been doing is a waste of time? I'm not trying to poke you in the face or be provocative or anything else like that, but I do think we need to get our attention right because I suspect that there's nobody in this room, nobody in this room that would will or that would intend to go about life and the rhythms of your life and all the work and all the effort and all the doing that you do, I suspect that there is not a person in this room, young or old, that wants to waste time, resources, or life. Most of us, I suspect, want our lives to matter. We want to give ourselves to things that are bigger than ourselves. We want to give ourselves to things that will last beyond our last breath. We want to do those kinds of things that ultimately really and truly matter. And yet, despite the fact that none of us would want to waste our time and all of us would want our lives to matter, the fact of the matter of it is, and it's subtle, the rhythms of life, the appetites of our heart, and the things that our culture celebrate and esteem will put each of us into patterns and rhythms of life where we get caught up in the great doing of many things, accomplishing much, earning much, but, listen to me, failing to do one of the most central things that we exist to do. We would never mean for that to happen. 
We would never will for that to happen, but we get distracted. We lose focus. We take our eye off the bigger picture and we give ourselves in full to all of those things that are going to vanish one day. It is wood, hay, and stubble. It is It is that which moth and rust will eat away and destroy. It is not a treasure that lasts. And I suspect that none of us will want to do that, but yet it will be the rhythm of our life that we will do that. And listen to me, I'm not just talking here just so I can be as clear as I can possibly be. I'm not just talking about people that are serving God and those who are not serving God. And so here, I'm not just saying to those of you who are not serving God that you're wasting your life. Hey, look, can I just be honest with you? Even for those of us, a guy like me, that has given my entire life and professional career to serving Jesus and teaching and preaching and proclaiming and studying and writing and doing all of those things, even for guys like me. Listen to me. It can be the case that I get caught up in so much in ministry and the doing of ministry that even there I fail to do the thing that I actually exist to do. None of us would want that, and yet it will happen to every single one of us unless we get very intentional about hearing and listening to what God says. Well, how do you go through life and not waste it, not spend it on something that really won't matter when it's all said and done? None of us want to do that, so let's hear. Let's hear today from the Scripture. Jesus said that of all the commands in the law, this one right here is the most important one. He said, he actually said it's the greatest commandment. Let me tell you about the trap they were setting for him in Matthew 22. They're asking him this question, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in all the law? And that sounds real noble, but it's a trap. It's a trap because what they wanted him to do was point to one of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the big Ten Commands. Surely he would point to one of those. And if he had, it would have sounded noble and very theologically wonderful for him to do so. But it's a trap because the moment you say one of those commands is the greatest, you've also implied that the other nine are not significant. And now they pick up the stones and they can stone him to death. It's a trap. Jesus, interestingly though, takes the bait. He actually will answer the question. And this is astounding that he'll do that. And it's also interesting because he'll answer the question by, in fact, pointing to the places in Scripture where the Ten Commandments are given, but not from Exodus 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. He goes to the section where the Ten Commandments are actually found, but interestingly, he doesn't point to one of the Ten Commandments. He points instead to the Shema. The hear and obey, it's God getting down in Israel's face, so to speak, grabbing them by the cheeks and saying, listen to me and obey me. And there in that moment, as he gets Israel's attention, he clarifies for them that which is absolutely the most fundamental thing that you and I can do with our existence, the kind of thing that I want to know and the kind of thing that I suspect you want to know. And so with that passage in view, let me mention four things from the text I think that God wants from us this morning. Number one, the first one might surprise us, but it's there. Number one, God wants us to think about him properly and speak about him properly. There's this odd, strange part of the text that we see this point in. Isn't it interesting? Hear, O Israel... God is grabbing him by the face and saying, I'm speaking to you, listen to me, and obey me. 
And he does, in fact, eventually give them a command, an imperative, something that they must do. We'll see it in my second point. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. And here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He'll get to the command. But isn't it interesting? Just grammatically in the text, especially as we see it in English right here, hear, O Israel, listen and obey, Israel, is what that means. And then the very next words out of his mouth are not actually a command. Grammatically, this is strange. Hear and obey, and then he doesn't give a command. Hear and obey, and what he does do, watch this, hear and obey, he gives a theological statement. Hear me and listen to me and obey me, and the next thing he says is a doctrinal affirmation about himself. Hear, O Israel, watch this, the Lord our God, here's the doctrinal statement, the Lord is one. Isn't this strange? I'm about to give you a command, and the very next thing God does is he affirms monotheism. Now that's a big word. What does that mean? Monotheism. Mono means one. Theism means God. Monotheism, one God. Indeed, this is Judaism. Indeed, this is Christianity. Monotheism. Not many gods, one God. Now, we'll get to the actual command in a minute, but I think we need to understand why God would do this. Why would he just grammatically say, hear me and obey, and then affirm monotheism? I think it's because, quite frankly, my point, God wants you to think about him properly and speak about him properly. In, in a word, theology matters, my friend. You would expect a seminary president to say that, wouldn't you? And yes, I am absolutely saying it to you. But I'm saying it to you because I think this is important in the text. I mean, it's this strange grammatical moment in the text where God is going to say, hear me and obey, I'm one. The implication of that is, don't confuse me with the polytheistic gods. See, here's the context. You've got to understand what's going on here, big picture. Israel had spent hundreds of years in Egypt. Doctrinally, in that culture, do you know what that was like? Well, they were polytheistic. God is affirming here monotheism. They've just come out of a polytheistic culture. What does that mean? Poly means many. Theism means God many gods. Is, Egypt had the belief in many gods. There was a sun god and a moon god and a fertility god and a harvest god and a river god and a rain god. There was a god for everything and you made attributions to them. The pharaohs themselves were viewed as gods. Polytheism. Here's what God is saying. When you think about me, do not confuse me with the gods of your world. They're coming out of Egypt, polytheism, and God therefore will clarify for them exactly who and what he is and exactly who and what he's not. And he wants them to hear it and he wants them to obey it. Now watch this. Not only do they come out of a context of polytheism, they're about to go into a context of polytheism. They're about to, right here in Deuteronomy, they're about to go into the land of Canaan. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years wandering around, and that's all coming to an end. They're about to go into the promised land, into the land of Canaan, where once again, guess what the theological system was like? It was a theological system of, yet again, polytheism with a sun god and a moon god and a fertility god. So here's the picture that you've got to see. All around Israel, 
Everywhere they'd look, there was nothing but theological confusion. And God says to his people, don't play that game with me. Don't confuse me with the gods of this world. Don't let your culture dictate to you what you believe about me. Hey, you know what? I don't know. In the year 2023, for Western Christianity, I kind of think that's a word we need to hear. Here's why. Because yet again, we live in a cultural context that is constantly, young folks, listen to me, constantly trying to get you to compromise on what we say God is. This world can't stand what we believe about our God. It will tell us that these beliefs are intolerable, that you cannot hold they'll call you these beliefs. They'll call you a bigot. They'll say hateful things. Jesus warned of this, by the way. Matthew chapter 10, remember this? If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call you? If they hated me, they will hate you as well. You will be hated by all for my sake. Brother will rise up against brother, he says. A father against child, children against parents. It might even be your parents. It might even be your children that will call you all these slanderous things because you actually believe what the Bible says. But hear me. If you're a Christian, then that means you're a Christ follower. And a Christ follower cannot actually fail to follow him and claim to be following. Right? Which means you and I, are we're free to do lots of things. We're free to believe whatever you want to believe. But if we're going to call it Christian, then it actually has to be Christian. Listen, I think that there's a reminder here to the children of Israel. I think there's one to us as well that our theology matters, that God wants us to think about him properly and speak about him properly in our witness. That's an important word for us today because everything about our cultural moment is pushing us and pressuring us to compromise the word of God. And we cannot do this. Listen, from generation to generation, the gospel has been passed down from one generation to the next. The faith, once delivered to the saints, passed like a baton from that generation to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And whether we like it or not, we now are the ones standing in this moment holding that which through the ages has been passed down and we must stand where he told us to stand and affirm what he told us to affirm. My friends, one application of this, you and I, not just your pastor and your pastoral team, we have to be a people of scripture. We have to be a people of the book that we study and consume the word of God and learn it and learn the basic teachings of our faith. This is not just for the theologians. This is not just for the pastors. This is for the redeemed. God wants you to think about him properly. And he wants you to speak about him properly, number one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Don't confuse him with what the world says. Number two, here's the actual command. God wants us to think about him and speak about him properly. But number two, God also, here's the way I don't waste my life. God wants us to love him with everything that we are. Lord, What's the greatest commandment in all of the law? Hear the question. And Jesus now will quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He will modify it slightly. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, here's the answer to that profound question. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Jesus says mind. Now, a couple things to note here about this command. Number one, Jesus says it's the greatest. I think we have to pay attention to that. That doesn't mean that there aren't other commands in Scripture that we disregard. That is not what that means. This command is the greatest, not in the sense that it negates anything else. It doesn't. Think of it this way. It's the greatest in the fact that it provides structure to everything else. It's the command. It's the, it's the adhesive that holds all the rest of our life and our action in Christ together such that I can, in fact, do all those other things, but if I don't love God, then I'm actually failing to be who I'm supposed to be and doing what I'm supposed to do. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Remember this, if I speak with the tongues of angels and of men, the context there is there was this debate in Corinth over who are the most spiritually elite. And evidently, those who spoke in prophetic types of tongues or heavenly tongues, it sounded like babbling, and you'd have to have a translator. And if you had that spiritual gift, then evidently in their mind, you were the elite spiritually. And Paul says this, you can speak with the tongues of men, meaning speak your regular ordinary language, or of angels, the heavenly language. But if you have not love, watch this, you are a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. Here's what that means. Imagine I go over and as I speak, somebody's just banging and clanging on the cymbals the whole time that I'm speaking. That brother would be a nuisance. That person would be an annoyance, a hindrance. That person would be a problem. Here's what Paul's saying. You can have the greatest spiritual gifts, but if you don't have love, you're a problem. Did you know that ministers of the gospel can do that? I know because I've done that. Man, I sure grew up in Jesus. I, I mean, I, I went from being that kid who had nothing. I, I grew up in a very, I know, introduced as a president of a Southern Baptist seminary. You probably maybe think, I don't know, that I was like born to Baptist royalty. No, I was born to tobacco farmers. Uh, parents split up when I was seven years old. Drugs, alcohol were mine. Trouble, arrests. I got arrested twice my junior year in high school, the first time for stealing seven cases of beer out of the back of a grocery store and another time for smoking pot in my Jeep one night. I was a scoundrel. I was a crook. I was hurtful. That's who I was. And at the age of 18 years old, I met Jesus Christ. I'd failed two grades coming along because I couldn't read. I mean, I was not successful at quite literally anything I'd ever done. But at 18 years old, I met Jesus Christ. He profoundly changed my life. I was that kid who had nothing. I had no degrees. I had no accomplishments. I'd failed at everything I'd ever done. But man, I had Jesus. And because I had Jesus, there was a power and there was an anointing and there was a joy on my life. And I went from being that kid with God's hand upon him to growing all the way up in Jesus. And it went full circle. I mean, I went from being the kid that had failed two grades to having two PhDs. I went from being the kid that couldn't read to authoring six books. I mean, the Lord grew me up and I became a dean and a, faculty, uh, and a professor and a, and a president and all these things. That's what the Lord did. But along that journey, here's what would happen to me from about the age of 27 through 35. I'm 46 now. This is a season of my life that I refer to as the dark season, the cold season. 
a season where in the eyes of the world I was much, and in the eyes of the ministry I was much, but I was a sounding brass, a clanging cymbal because my love and affection for Jesus had grown cold. It is possible, my dear friends, for you to get caught up in all kinds of things, all kinds of good things, all kinds of ministry things. But if, our, if we don't love him, then quite literally, what are we doing? You see, it's called the greatest commandment because he uses this illustration, this metaphor. It's like the hinge of a door. The whole weight of the door rests on those hinges. And the whole function of that door rests and resides in those hinges. It can't move and open and close the way it's supposed to and designed to work without those hinges. And in the same way, you and I can do all the stuff of Christianity, hear me, but if we don't actually love Christ, then what are we doing? We're like a door that does not work, doing much and accomplishing nothing. You don't want to waste your life. Listen to me. I'm not trying to say you should all go into ministry, sell your business. No, you're a businessman. You're a plumber. You're a police officer. You're a pastor. You're a missionary. I don't know what you do. And it doesn't really matter. Love Jesus. That's what you're here for. Love Christ more supremely. That's what you're here for. That's why God created you. That's why he gave you breath. That's why he sustained you right now. That's why you have a beat in your heart, to love the one that made you. And if you're not doing that, then like a door with no hinges, you don't work. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. There's other things about this command that are interesting. What about this partitioning all your heart with all your soul? And whether you go strength or mind from the Deuteronomy strength or mind from Matthew 22, what's up with the partitions, the three parts? Is Jesus intending here to say that, hey, like you got this part of you and that part of you and that part of you and just make sure that you're... No, the point is, is actually not to have you compartmentalize. The point is to say you love Jesus, you love the Father with quite literally everything. All that I have, and that is instructive for us, is it not? Because here's what we're prone to do. What we're prone to do is say, Lord, I will obey you here, and I will obey you here, but this is mine. And that, my dear friends, is called idolatry. That means you love something more supremely than the one who made you, redeemed you, and provides for you. And you love something more deeply than the one who can actually satisfy you. And so the whole point here is to say, stop partitioning. Stop chopping off parts of your life and claiming lordship over it for yourself. But the whole, the totality of my life, every fiber of my existence, every drop of blood in my body, every breath that I breathe is unto him. Right? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with everything I got and with all that I am, we give it to the Lord Jesus and we love him. There's one other thing I want to note here, and I'm not trying to pick a theological fight here, but I actually think this is significant. You know, there's this thing called the Westminster Catechism. You're Baptist, so you might not know about it. Lots of Presbyterians use it. Catechisms are when they're teaching tools that we use to teach our children the basic teachings of the faith. This is actually something that, quite frankly, Baptists could actually learn something from the other denominations. They're quite effective in teaching children. Catechisms are. The Westminster Catechism, coming out of that Reformed Presbyterian tradition, I love the question, the first question of the Catechism, and quite frankly, I love the way it answers it. Almost 100%, I'd make a tweak. 
Here's the question, the first question in the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? That's really asking the same question that Jesus has asked in Matthew chapter 22. What's the greatest commandment in all the law? The Catechism asks, what's the chief end? Meaning the most high and end purpose. What's the highest purpose and function of our existence in life? What is the chief end of man? It's a great question. It's the, first, it's the best question to start with. And I love the answer for the most part. I'd make a tweak. Here's what it says in response. The chief end of man is to, quote, glorify God and enjoy him forever. I think that's right. Tweak the word glorify, though. Why would you answer it that way? I mean, Jesus has basically asked that exact same question, and that's not the word he used. He used the word love. Love God. Love God. Glorify Him? That's great. That's high. But think about it, my dear friends. Loving is a higher function than mere glorifying. Think about it. The gold in the tabernacle glorifies God. The stars glorify God. My dog, Binkley, glorifies God by being Binkley. But the stars and the gold and the dog don't love. That is something that only creatures and beings in the Imago Dei can do. We have a higher function. It assumes giving all that I am in this not just praising way, but this affection pouring out kind of thing. So let me ask you some questions here this morning, if I may, for just a second. Has your affection for the Lord Jesus grown cold? Are you working towards cultivating, praying for God to break through in your heart and renew to you that joy and that affection and that devotion and that love that belongs to him, the one that can satisfy you the most? I tell you, my dear friends, there are a lot of shiny objects in this world, a lot of things that can entice you. And for a moment satisfy you but none of them can fully satisfy you and none of them can sustainably satisfy you like Jesus Christ himself so if we want to go through life and not waste it not miss the very thing we're here for whether you're not in the ministry or in the ministry love God, God wants you to love him with everything you are. God wants you to think about him properly, number one. God wants you to love him with everything that you are. Third point, let's talk about the family. My dear friends, God wants you to teach your children to love him in the same way. You might hear that point this way. Well, there's people in this room that that applies to, the parents. But maybe the students in the room, it doesn't apply to you because you don't have kids. Maybe even the grandparents. Well, you're past that age. It doesn't really apply to you. No, 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 no. Let's have a family discussion for a minute. And young folks, it is vital that we put this in your mind and in your heart right now. You might be a long way out from being mama or a long way out from being daddy. But it is important that you embrace now God's intention for your life on how and what you will do with those little ones that God will entrust to your stewardship one day. God wants us to love him, and he also wants us to teach our children to love him. I love the way you said that a minute ago, Andrew, when you mentioned that you've got a student pastor and you're going to introduce him next week. I love the way you frame that, that he will help this church, hear this, 
This is important. He will help this church train moms and dads to be the primary disciple makers in these children's lives. You know why that needs to be that way? Because you are the primary discipleship makers. Let me tell you something, dad. Let me tell you something, mom. You might think that you're not cool. You may think that you're not effective. You may think your student, your child is not hearing you, not listening to you. Nobody on planet earth can have the impact on that child like you can have. Even if they disregard everything you say right now and seem to scoff at you and mock you and roll their eyes at you because you're so not cool. You keep loving them. You keep pouring into them because nobody has the voice in their life like you do. Listen to what the Bible actually says about this. Verse 6, And these words that I command you today, love God and think about Him properly. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Verse 7, listen to this, And you shall teach them diligently to your children. My friend, who is the primary disciple maker? It's you. It's your responsibility. The church exists to supplement, to help, to guide, to facilitate, to equip, to strengthen, to do all of those types of things. But my dear friends, the major person or persons in a, in a child's life that can have an impact is mom and dad. Husbands, listen to what the Bible talks about in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might present her to himself spotless and without wrinkle or blemish, holy and acceptable back to him. And then train your children up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Don't provoke them to anger. Dad, listen to me. You're the pastor of your home. You're the pastor of your home. You say, I'm not a pastor. Well, maybe not here at this church or any other church. But in your home, you have a God-given, God-assigned responsibility. And fellas, can I just say this to you? We're in this moment in our culture right now where we need to hear this because our culture, men, especially young men, this culture expects nothing out of you. It expects you to prolong your adolescence. Indulge your fantasies. Be reckless and irresponsible. And there will be ladies, bless their sweet, caring, hardworking souls, to come behind and sweep up the mess. That's what's championed in our culture right now. Young men, listen to me. God expects much more. God's called you to be a man. To stand up and take responsibility for yourself. Stand on your own two feet. Pursue Jesus yourself and provide a haven and a shelter for those that God will entrust into your care and to lead and guide. And that means it's time. It's time for us to stand up and take seriously the responsibility that God's given to us. Teach these things diligently to your children. It is your responsibility. I remember when I was pastoring a church back in North Carolina I had this couple that was going through a real hard time with their 18-year-old. Here was the story. 18-year-old was just revolting against every type of thing mom and dad would say they wanted him to do. You know, things like, hey, can you take out the trash? Can you be home at 10.30 night? Give him a curfew at 10.30. And boy, he hated that one in particular because he's a big boy. He's 18 years old. He was old enough to die for his country. I shouldn't have to come home and be in at 10.30. I remember this was really getting heated in the family. And so they asked 
for a meeting with me. And so one Sunday afternoon, mom and dad roll into my office and the kid comes into the office and we sit down and they make their case and he makes his case and he's just going on and on and on about what a big boy he is. And I looked at him and I said, let me ask you a question. Uh, do you pay rent? You live with your parents, right? He's like, well, yeah. And I was like, well, do you pay rent? I was like, okay. He, no. He said, okay. I said, okay. Who paid for your truck? Well, dad did. Who pays your insurance? He's getting uncomfortable at this point. Mom and dad. Where do you get your food? Do you, do you pay for the food you eat? No, mom buys it at the grocery store. On and on and on. And I looked at them and I said, I got a solution for you. Kick him out. And they scoffed and they, oh my God. I said, I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. You, those of you that have grown up, look, we know what happens. Something profound happens to you when you have to make a mortgage payment, right? <laughs> when you have to spend your hard-earned money that you have all these glorious ideas about fun things you can spend it on, and you have to spend that money on toilet paper? That grows you up. And I looked at that kid, and I said, let me tell you something. You're a kid. You're a kid. He got up, he stormed and huffed and puffed and went out. And I say all that whole story to say this. When he walked out, the dad and the mom's just sitting over there weeping and sobbing. And dad made the comment to me. He said, I, preacher, I don't know what we did wrong. Listen to this. He says what he said. He said, preacher, I don't know what we did wrong. We brought him to church. And I said, that right there. That's what you did wrong. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Was it wrong to bring him to church? No. Here's what's wrong in the thinking. This guy actually thought that, you know, drag him out of bed, force him to go to church, and drop him off as if it's the church and the church only's job to disciple him and teach him. And as long as dad had done that, took him to church, then dad and mom had done their job. No, that's the problem because you expected somebody else to do your job. You see it? Dad, mom, the scriptures say, teach this diligently to your children. And let me say something, friends, I know this is hitting hard, but I think this is important. You and I can't teach something we're not doing. Which means if we really want to have our lives focused on the thing that we are here to do, I, you, must love Jesus with deep devotion and affection. And now that I'm doing it, watch and see how I can get my children caught up in the same with me. And teaching them to love him also, because that for them as well is the primary reason they're here. Let me make one more point real quick. It's kind of a neat point in the text. To review, though, God wants you to think about him and speak about him properly. God wants you to love him with everything that you have and all that you are. God wants you to teach this diligently to your children. And watch this fourth one. This is kind of an interesting point. God wants you to redeem the ordinary. God wants you to redeem the ordinary. Redeem the ordinary towards teaching them to love God. In other words, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. There's the instruction. And really, the rest of the paragraph there is speaking to how you teach them. And it's not in the ways we would expect. 
So you hear me, it's your job to teach your children. And so now what we would think is, we probably start going in our heads. Uh, I, I think families think this way because churches do. We start thinking of big moments we can have. Well, teach them this way. We take them on a retreat. We do all these big moments. But actually, it's not the big moments that God points to as being the most effective for teaching. It's actually the ordinary, seemingly throwaway moments that seem unimportant to us. This is actually what God says to do. Watch this. You shall teach them diligently to your children and watch when, where, and how. You shall talk about them when you, well, sit in your house. You know how ordinary that sounds? You know, you're just sitting around the house on a Tuesday or a Thursday or a Saturday. You're, in those moments, you're showing and displaying the love of God. When you walk by the way, you're just walking down the sidewalk. And once again, it's just these ordinary moments that have deep, profound impact. When you lie down and when you rise up, notice the ordinary stuff and the ordinary moments in which you and I are supposed to be teaching and displaying the love of God. I remember when a little over four years ago, Tara's father went to be with the Lord. He'd fought cancer for nine years Supposed to live for 18 months. He got nine years. We were so grateful to have those nine years with him. It was a hard, hard day when he passed. And I can remember as we sat around in the days that followed his death with the family, I can remember her brother. He's the youngest of the three. I remember Nick, her brother, making the comment, you know, it's not as he remembered his father and the impact that his name was Ernie. We called him Big Easy. He said, I can remember the impact that Big Easy had on me. It wasn't just in the big moments. And he said, and in fact, as I sit here right now, I kind of struggle to even remember the big moments. But what I miss the most are those seemingly nothing moments. It was the riding in the car, going to soccer practice. It was sitting around watching TV. It was the ordinary, mundane, seemingly insignificant moments of just life on life. Listen, mom and dad, your children need you. They need you really, really badly. This world, they are facing things that you and I did not have to face. Now, we're having to face it now, too, with them. But parents, listen to me. When we were coming along, we knew that theoretically there were homosexual people. We didn't know any, right? We knew that there were transgender people. We didn't know any. It was all theoretical. This is not theoretical for them. These people were in third period with them or in third grade with them or play t-ball with them. I mean, this is life on life. And unfortunately for them, they're being pressured by our world in such ways where they're now, as a little kid, a second grader, they're pressured to wonder if they're really a boy or a girl. Let me tell you something. This world is not muted. This world is not being quiet. This world is not being gentle. This world is coming with enormous force, beating on them on a daily basis. Mom and dad, they need you. And they need you in the big moments, yes, but man, they need you in the little moments. They need time. They need affection. They need encouragement. They need guidance. And they may scoff at you, and it may seem as though they're not listening, but my dear friends, ignore that. And you keep being faithful to them. And showing them and displaying to them a love and affection for Jesus Christ. And they may laugh at it now, but there's coming moments. There's coming moments. I remember Tara and I have had the opportunity to disciple a lot of people in our ministries. And I remember, man, we did this small group of college students for about three years. And you know, in college, they still kind of think their mom and dad are foolish. 
And that same group of people ended up falling in love and getting married and reforming into a brand new group. It was the exact same group of people, but it was no longer a college care group. It was a young married care group. And boy, they wanted to know every word of wisdom we could possibly give to them about their marriage. But you know the other thing that was phenomenal about that group? All of a sudden in that group, their moms and dads were not fools anymore. All of a sudden they remembered things their parents had told them, things their dad had said, things their mom had said. And they long to have those moments back for them. And yes, it's true that in the moments, the years before, they would scoff at them and they would laugh at them and they would mock at them and they'd roll their eyes at them. But when they grew up, there were seeds and there were roots that were there now because of faithful parents. None of us, none of us want to miss the reason we're here, right? None of us do. And yet, if we're not intentional, we will do it. So let's be intentional. That's the solution. Let's be intentional. You and me, let's do this. Give yourself completely to Jesus Christ and love Him and walk with Him. And with what God gives you, pour it. Pour it into the next generation. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we are grateful, so deeply grateful that we get to be yours. I thank you for Moberly Baptist Church and for what you're doing here and for the great grace you've poured upon them and the good work Pastor Andrew's doing here. We pray that, Lord, you bless them and strengthen them. Lord Jesus, raise up from this very room, from this church, a generation of men and women that will love you more dearly than anything else in this world and will give that love and affection to their children and the next generation coming behind them. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be faithful. We love you and we adore you in Jesus' name.